0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study of the last discourse of Yeshua. This has been a long passage. It's an important passage. This is our Lord's final teaching to His disciples before His death. This discourse has three large divisions. The first division is thirteen thirty-one through fourteen thirty-one. It dealt with Yeshua's departure and the disciples' future. The second main division, the one we're looking at now, it's verse—I mean, chapter fifteen and sixteen. It's focused on the disciples' life after the departure of Yeshua. The final main section is John 17. And 17 contains Yeshua's high priestly prayer. I'm looking forward to getting into chapter 17, and not too far away, hopefully. Uh, in this section we're looking at now, Yeshua is preparing his disciples for life without his presence, his bodily presence. Now, in our text for today, Yeshua abruptly turns from the subject of the role of the paraclete in guiding the disciples into all truth back to His impending departure in verse 16. Now in our text, Yeshua is preparing the disciples for the overwhelming sorrow they're about to experience in the next few hours as they watch Him be arrested, mocked, whipped, and then crucified. This is all going to happen within the next few hours. So their world is about to come crashing down around them. Verse 16 says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you'll see me. Now, he has said virtually the same thing many times. In chapter 7, he says, I'll be with you a little longer. Chapter 12, he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Chapter 13, yet a little while, I'm with you. And now he says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. His time with them was about to end. Now, the big question here among scholars is this, which departure and return are in view here? What is he talking about? Now, as you can imagine, there's multiple opinions on this, like there is on everything. I want to give you the three main views here, okay? First of all, a little while and you'll see me, was referring to his death, all right? That makes sense, right? A little while, it is a little while, okay? It's just a few hours, and he's going to be gone. And secondly, to his return in his resurrection. So, and then a little while longer, and you'll see me. We know that in a couple days, you know, he was resurrected, and he did meet with them. They saw him. So this would make the first little while just a few hours in time, and the second little while would be a few days in time. All right? So that's one view of this thing. Let's look at another view. Another view is that he's talking about his ascension. A little while and you'll see me no longer because he's ascending to the Father and they're not going to see him anymore. And then he says a little while and you'll see me again and that's referring to the second coming. This would make the first little while 40 days. It would make the second little while 40 years. Okay? So we got the 40 days, we got the 40 years here. That's a... Another one, waiting for the Lord's return. Now, a third view. A little while and you'll see me no longer. This view is, says that see is used in two different ways in this verse. Now, it's the same Greek word, but they just see it used in two ways. In the first case, he meant see in the physical sense. <clears throat> and in the second, he meant see in the spiritual sense. So, he'd be saying, I'm going to leave, talking about his death. But in a little while after that, referring to Pentecost, I'm coming back in the presence of the Spirit. So this would make the first little while only a few hours in duration. And the second little while would be 40 days. Alright, so those are the three major views. So does the first little while mark the time until Yeshua's death? Or is it referring to His ascension? And does the second little while mark the time of Yeshua's resurrection? Does it mark the time of the descent of the Spirit on Pentecost? Or the parousia? Which view do you think makes more sense? Yes. <laughs> All right, Bron, we got one person for the first view here, okay? Let me tell you how I see this, and then I'll try to explain it, try to tell you why why I see it that way, okay? I see Yeshua referring to His eminent departure and death, and then to His return to the disciples shortly after that in the resurrection. But, I also see view view 2, where I think Yeshua is talking about His ascension, and He's talking about His second coming. And I think that in a typical way, Lazarus in this verse has a double meaning for us. Now, we've seen that all through this book. So, in a little while, and you will see me no longer, points to Yeshua's death, but it also points to His departure into heaven. They're both true. a little while, they're not going to see Him because He died. Then He's coming back after the resurrection for 40 days. Then He's going, and they're not going to see Him again. Alright? So, the following again in a little while, and you'll see me, points to the resurrection, but I also think it points to the general resurrection at the second coming. So there's a double meaning here, and hopefully by the time I'm finished, you'll at least understand why I think that. Let me first remind you of a couple of Lazarus' double meanings. Speaking of his death, Lazarus' death, Yeshua says this, But when Yeshua heard it, heard of Lazarus' death, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified in it. Now there's a double meaning here concerning death and glorification. Yeshua's going to be glorified by the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, right? But that same miracle is going to enrage the Jewish authorities to the point where it brings about His own death. And through His own death, He's going to be glorified. So this miracle not only displayed Yeshua's identity as God's Son, but it also led to His death, which was the ultimate manifestation of His glory. So double meaning there. Let's look at another one In 12.32, He says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. The verb here, hupsao, lifted up, usually means to exalt somebody. And as usual, Lazarus wants us to see a double meaning here. It can refer to either figurative exaltation or to literal hosting a body on a tree or a cross. Here, it's both. Yeshua being lifted up on a cross resulted in His being exalted as the Savior of the world. So in typical fashion, I see Yeshua here referring to His imminent departure at death and His return to the disciples shortly after that in the resurrection. But I also see Him talking about His ascension and the second coming. And I'll try to develop this here in a minute. Now, notice the disciples' response to what Yeshua said here. In verse 17, Some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that He says to us? A little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you'll see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So, this is the first time since chapter fourteen, verse twenty-two that we hear the disciples saying anything. They've been quiet. The Lord's been teaching. Now they're asking a question. What do you get from what they say here? What is this that he says to us? What do you get from that? They're clueless. Okay, they're clueless. They've been with him for three and a half years. They're clueless. They don't have a clue as to what he means. What do you mean a little while? Where are you going? Why are you going somewhere? He's been talking to them about his death for probably about a year now. We see this all the way back when they were in Galilee in Mark chapter 9. Mark 9 says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand. And look, and they're afraid. We don't understand what you're saying, but we're not asking any questions. You know what? We don't want to hear this. We don't want to know the answer because we don't like the whole concept. They didn't get it and they didn't ask. They didn't want to hear it because it didn't fit their idea of who Messiah was. See, the disciples had no category to allow them to see a disciple who was going—I mean, a Messiah who was going to suffer and die. That wasn't in their thought patterns anywhere. They believed Messiah would establish his kingdom. He would reign in Jerusalem. He would destroy the, their enemies, the Romans. He would bring salvation to Israel as he set up the kingdom. The messianic expectation was part of their culture, especially at this time. They grew up with it. We see this from the disciples after the Lord died. The disciples were on the road to Mass. They're discouraged. And Luke tells us, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's their hope. We, he died. They killed him. And here we were thinking he's the one that's going to redeem Israel. They thought the Messiah would come. He'd establish his reign over Israel. He'd bring in times of peace, times of blessing and prosperity, as they saw in the Tanakh. They had forsaken everything to follow Yeshua in hopes that He was the promised Messiah. So they're confused over what He's telling them here. But they're going to be more deeply confused in the next couple hours as they watch Him suffer the most shameful, painful death imaginable. In spite of Yeshua's repeated telling them that He was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, they didn't get it. They just, and we talked about this a couple of weeks, they didn't have the Spirit yet, so they just not get it. They're clueless. Verse 18 says, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? That's a good question. The church still asks that today. What does he mean by soon? What does he mean by shortly? We do not know what he is talking about. Now here, Lazarus specifically identifies a little while as the phrase that the disciples didn't understand. That's what they didn't get. What do you mean a little while? He still didn't understand what he meant by talking about leaving. Verse 19 says, Yeshua knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will see me, and again a little while, and you will not see me, or see me? This little while thing's in here a whole lot of times, okay, in this section. So Yeshua here is kind of rephrasing the question in his own words, emphasizing a little while. Now this question that he's asking sets the stage for verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you'll weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, this double use of truly or amen here emphasizes that Yeshua is about to reveal something really important to them. Yeshua is the only one who uses this double truly or double amen in a sentence. And it seems to have the connotation that this is really important, what I have to tell you. You need to listen up. You need to pay close attention what i'm telling you here he says you're going to weep and lament now the words weep and lament were customary terms for loud wailing and lamenting at a funeral at someone's death now, here's what sounds a little weird to us but in the palestinian culture of yeshua's time they expected a public display of grief at the death of a loved one so if someone died you need someone around making a lot of noise we- we- weeping wailing And so here's what they would do. when they would call the funeral home to set this up. You know, hey, my loved one died. I want to get some. Can you send some mourners over? All right? And they had professional mourners that would come outside your house and they would lament really loudly and they'd cry and they'd weep as the body was being prepared. And then they would wail as you went through town as the body was taken to be buried. And I'm just thinking, these people are paid to do this. this. You know, it seems weird to us. You know, you pay someone to come and make a bunch of you know, sad sounds because, you know, someone has died. I mean, I can see you being sad, but to hire someone to do that, it sounds weird to us. Anyway, that's what they did. Well, the term weep here is frequently used of mourning that occurs when someone dies. It's used in Mark 16.10 for the disciples who wept over the death of the Lord. So Yeshua's telling the disciples, there will momentarily experience, great sorrow during his trial, scourging, and crucifixion. Again, this word weep is connected with death. So he's telling them, you know, you're going to weep, you're going to lament because I'm dying, all right? He says, but the world's going to rejoice. So while the disciples grieve, the world celebrates. Now Lazarus obviously has the Jewish leaders here in view who are plotting Yeshua's death. That's what he means by the world. And again, this is just a good illustration of the world doesn't mean... Everybody, okay, everybody, everybody on the whole planet is not rejoicing over the death. It's the Jewish leaders. It's that culture that they were putting him to death, that were jealous of him. It's them. They represent everything that Yeshua is opposed to, and so they're rejoicing. Yeah, he's, we got him out of the way. But he tells them, your sorrow will turn into joy. So their sorrow is going to turn into joy when they see him after the resurrection. We see this in Luke 24. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. So this is after the resurrection and they're excited. There's joy because he's alive. He's alive. He said he was going to do this and he did. Luke 24, 52. And they, they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Because he'd risen from the dead. Now, notice the expression here, but your sorrow will turn into joy. In the original text, it literally reads, your sorrow shall become joy. So that what they're saying here, it's the very thing that causes the sorrow is the same identical thing that caused your joy. So in other words, it's not so much that your sorrow is replaced by joy, but the sorrow itself becomes joy the reason for the joy. See, it's Christ's death which is going to bring sorrow to the disciples, but it's also His death which is going to bring them the ultimate joy. Because they will come to see that the death which caused them sorrow on the physical, natural level is on the spiritual level the foundation of their deliverance from guilt, condemnation of sin. And the foundation of their right to eternal life. The reason He died, that's why we can have eternal life. So the very thing over which they're sorrowful becomes the thing over which they're happy and joyous. They're celebrating the death. Everything about the Christian faith, everything, rests on the bodily resurrection of Yeshua from the dead. And they're rejoicing over this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15-17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you're still in your sins. Well, they're sorrow turned to joy because they saw Him raised from the dead. Now, you may be thinking this all sounds like Yeshua is talking about His death and resurrection, and I agree He is. So you might be thinking, well, how do you get a double meaning out of that? How do you see this also as applying to the ascension and second coming? I'll show you in the next verse, okay? Look at this next verse, you'll see it clearly. When a woman is grieving, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. There. You see the double meaning? (laughs) Huh? Not yet? You don't see it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, verses 21, 22, and 23 are loaded with references to the end of the Jewish age and the consummation of the kingdom of God in eighty seventy, which show us that there's a double meaning here. Let's look at this. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. How has the symbolic imagery of a woman's suffering in childbirth been used throughout the Tanakh? Well, if you're familiar with it, the travail of a woman in childbirth is the traditional biblical metaphor for the suffering of the covenant people that will precede the Messianic age. The birth pains of the kingdom is the idea here. See, the Jews believed that just before the manifestation of the kingdom of Israel, they'd go through this period of intense suffering. William Barclay says this, Time was divided by Jews into two great periods, this present age and the age to come. The present age is wholly bad, beyond all hope of human reformation. He's talking about the old covenant age. It can be mended only by direct intervention of God. When God does intervene, the golden age, the age to come, will arrive. But in between the two ages, there will come the day of the Lord, which will be a time of terrible and fearful upheaval, like the birth pains of a new age. So that's, that's how they saw that. As the kingdom came in, there were going to be these birth pains. We see this in Micah chapter 4. He says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. All right, that's the end times. That's Israel's end times, the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow into it. So Micah here is prophesying that God's kingdom is going to be established in the last days and the people are going to be drawn to the kingdom. Now drop down to verse 9. He says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? He says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, there you shall be rescued, there Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So there's this redemption again, and the idea of a woman in labor is used for the suffering that precedes the regathering of the scattered remnant and the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at Isaiah 26, All right, Isaiah 26 combines the figure of the woman in childbirth with the words, a little while, same exact phrase in the Septuagint version, and the promise of resurrection and the promise of joy. In other words, everything that this text in John is talking about, we see in Isaiah 26. Let's look at it. O Yahweh, in distress they have sought you, They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pains when she is near to giving birth. So were we, because you, O Yahweh, we were pregnant, we writhe, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen." Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Okay, there's the resurrection. All right. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. There's the joy of the text. Your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Again, there's the resurrection. Come, my people, enter your chambers. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. So here we see these same exact terms, these same concepts. We see this a little while. And it it appears in the context of figurative childbirth, and then the rising of the dead, and then the joy, just everything we see in our text in John uh, 16.21. And the context is one in which ultimate deliverance is promised to the people of Judah, though for the present, they're sorely pressed by peril and adversity. Now there's the time of great trouble for Judah, but it's going to be, there's going to be deliverance. So Yeshua had to have this text in mind, I think, as He's talking to His disciples. I mean, too many elements are exactly the same. All right. So Yeshua is connecting a little while with birth pains and the resurrection and consummation of the kingdom that took place in A.D. 70, bringing in great joy. He's connecting these things. He also used the same metaphor in Matthew 24. He says, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now Yeshua here is prophesying that persecution is going to come to the church, they're going to suffer, and it's going to culminate in the end of the age and His second advent. He is speaking of the end of the age for the Jews who rejected Him and the end of the Old Covenant order which is going to result in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the birth of the new Israel from the faithful remnant of old Israel that was established going to establish the universal new covenant church all right that's what's happening here that's what he's talking about now in the establishment of the old covenant with moses at mount sinai god gave the old covenant people 40 years to come fully into the covenant before they took possession of that promised land there was a transition period in scripture 40 is the number of testing as well as the number of symbolizing consecration And just as the first Israel had a 40 year journey before fully establishing the old covenant in the homeland, the new Israel, the new covenant people also experience a 40 year period from Christ's resurrection in AD 30 to the complete destruction of the old covenant in AD 70. In AD 70, the Romans as the instruments of God's redemptive judgment against the rejection of the Messiah, they're going to destroy the old temple in Jerusalem in fulfillment of Yeshua's prophecy here in Matthew 24. And with the coming of Messiah, the temple no longer had any meaning. It's no longer significance in liturgical worship. Only the blood of Christ would count, not the blood of bulls, not the blood of animals. He was the true sacrifice. So in our text, I think the secondary meaning refers to our Lord's ascension and His second coming. That would make the first little while... 40 days in duration, again, a very significant number, referring to the Lord's ascension. And the second little while would be 40 years in duration, referring to the Lord's return at the end of the age. Now, verse 22, he says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. Again, I think there's a double meaning there. They rejoice in the resurrection. They rejoice in the return of the Lord. Now, this verse is also an allusion to Isaiah 66, verse 14 in the Septuagint. And your hearts will rejoice. This is a Brenton Septuagint here. He says, and you shall see, and your hearts shall rejoice. It's the exact same in the Greek. And it's in the context of, of the promise of consummation in Isaiah 66 here. Look at uh, verse 7. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. So again, you see this idea in the context here of a woman giving birth. Verse 10 says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All who love her, rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. Now in the context of Isaiah 66, These passages refer to the consummation of the kingdom in 8070. So we got the birth pains. We got the rejoicing. We have resurrection. We got in a little while. They're all there in Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 66. Verse 23 says, In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he will give it you. Again, in that day, this is another Hebraic idiomatic phrase, like the idea of childbirth which is commonly associated with the coming of the new age. So hopefully you can see that all the allusions in these verses to resurrection, to the end of the age, to joy, give us a double meaning in these verses. So now I want to back up to verse 16 and ask the same question that the disciples asked here. What does he mean by a little while? And as I said, the church is still asking that question today. What did he mean? He didn't really mean little while. He said little while, but he didn't mean that because can't mean that. You know, they come up with some other idea. Let me ask you this. Can this word, little while, can it be used to the second coming? Veronica thinks so. Anybody else? Could it be used? Talking about this passage in John 16, John MacArthur writes this. All right, now pay attention. He says, now there's a whole case made for the fact that our Lord is saying, you're going to see me when I come back in glory. He's talking about the second coming. So he's saying there's a case made. He is saying people argue that this little while means the second coming. All right. But he says, but that's not really a little while. He's talking about second coming. It can't be a little while. When he says a little while and you won't see me, he means a little while. All right, so that's not really a little while. The second coming, he says, is not a little while. Why? But if he says a little while and you see me, then that little while has to be very different from the first one. Why? He goes, that makes it really strange. And here's why he thinks it's different. And they actually aren't going to be around at the second coming. So, see, MacArthur says the second little while can't refer to the second coming because... It's going to be thousands of years, see, in his view. Because these guys aren't going to be around. All right? So he said the second little one has to be really different than the first one. They've got to be a huge separation there. But notice what he says about the disciples. They're actually not going to be around at the second coming. You know what that is? That's a flat contradiction of Scripture. All right? He says they actually aren't going to be around. Now watch what the Lord says. Truly, I say to you, the you is not you. The you is the disciples that he's talking to in the first century. There are some standing here, in other words, the people I'm talking to, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In other words, the people I'm talking to, you people, some of you are still going to be alive when I come back in a little while. Now, MacArthur says they actually aren't going to be anyone around at the second coming. Well, John, I think you're wrong here, okay? So who's right? John or Yeshua? I'm going with Yeshua, okay? you got to pick what you do. That's up to you. It's your business there. But it's just interesting that he goes right against the Scripture. The Lord said someone will be there. Of course, he interprets this passage different, obviously. All right? The Greek for a little while here is mikros. The same word is used in Hebrews 10.37. He says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now the Greek is very emphatic here. The author used a word which signifies a little while. He uses mikros here. And then for further emphasis, he adds the particle, meaning very. And he intensifies this further by repeating. So literally, it reads like this in Hebrews. For yet a very, very little while, and he shall come. Who sh- he sh- who shall come will come. So he's saying, he's intensifying what the Lord said. The Lord said that what the Lord said happened about 35 years prior to this. So he's in about eighty-sixty-five, 65, the writer of Hebrews, and he's saying it's a very, very little, which would make sense. If the Lord said it's a little while, it's a very, very little while now. Now, the idea which the author wants to see is that the time of the deliverance these Hebrew people were suffering the time of their deliverance wasn't far off at all. It was very close. The reference is undoubtedly to the second coming of Christ. I don't think anybody argues that here. Now, if this is a reference to the second coming of Christ, and if He has not yet come back, as most of the church believes that He hasn't come back, then what did this mean to the people whom, to whom it was written? What did that mean to the Hebrew people when He told them, they're suffering, and He says, hang on, for yet a very, very little while, and He that's coming will come and won't delay what did it mean to them nothing nothing it can't mean anything to them if he's told them this very very little while again 35 years prior to this the lord says in a little while and now he says in a very very little while he's coming but he didn't come and he still hasn't come 2000 years later so it meant nothing to those people nothing at all what does it mean to us doesn't mean anything to us either, because if he said that two thousand years ago and he still hasn't done it, we got a problem, right? Over can that mean over two thousand years? If the Lord did not return in the first century, this would have meant nothing to the Hebrews. To tell you the truth, it would have been deceptive to the Hebrews, because he's telling them relief's coming. Now Yahweh inspired the author of Hebrews to write it around 65 A.D. to the first century saints, to tell them in a very, very little while, He that shall come will come. How could he have made it clear that the second coming of Christ was going to be soon? What else could the writer of Hebrews said to make it more clear? I want you to notice what Yahweh says about those who speak His Word back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18. He says, I will, he's, he's talking to Moses here. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. I'm going to raise up another prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I'm going to put my words in his mouth. He's talking about Christ here. Christ is the prophet. He was going to raise up, put his words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that Yahweh has not spoken? So how do we know who's speaking, if it's the prophet speaking for you, Yahweh, or if the prophet's speaking for another god or speaking for themselves? He says, here's how you know. When a prophet speaks in the name of Yahweh, If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that Yahweh has not spoken. And the penalty for being a false prophet was you were put to death. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now most Christians today would say the Lord has not yet returned, which would make the writer of Hebrews a false prophet. But the problem is, it wasn't just the writer of Hebrews who said Yeshua would return in the first century. All the New Testament writers said that. Matter of fact, Yeshua said that. Okay? In Matthew 24, 34, I say to you, again, not us, the you of the first century, the people he was talking to, this generation. What generation? What generation is he talking about? (laughs) Okay, people, a little grammar lesson here. This here is the near demonstrative. If I said to you, we're going to knock down this building. What building am I talking about? The one you're sitting in, right? But if I said, if I use the far demonstrative, if I said to people, we're going to knock down that building. What building am I talking about? You might not know. There's no context. You don't know what building. But it's not this one because it's that one. So the Lord uses the near demonstrative here. I say to you, you first century people who are listening to me, this generation, the one that's alive now, the one I'm talking to, the one that's right here, this generation always refers to contemporaries. Every time it's used, it refers to contemporaries. But when people get to this text, they don't want to make it be contemporary anymore, which is like they're changing all the rules. He's telling his disciples that all the things he mentioned would come to pass in their generation. Biblically, a generation is 40 years. This would include the gospel being preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man. All that fits into this generation. This is so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. And they dance around these words. They try to make them say something they don't say. This generation. Okay, the one I'm talking to. So that's really clear, all right? So Yeshua speaking to his disciples says their generation is going to see the second coming. Was he wrong? If he was, then according to Deuteronomy, Yeshua is a false prophet. And if Yeshua is a false prophet, we're dead in our sins and we're separated from Yahweh forever. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's all over. I mean, if Yeshua was a false prophet, if He was wrong, if He messed up, if all the writers of the New Testament messed up, then we're wasting our time with the Bible because they're all false prophets. See, here's what you have to understand. If Yeshua does not keep the when part of His promise, He hasn't kept the promise because the when is part of the promise. He didn't say, someday I'm coming back. Okay, leave it open-ended. We'll just keep waiting. He didn't ever say that. He always said, soon, quickly, shortly. Some of you standing here. This generation. I mean, he, he couldn't have made it clear, but we still miss it. All right? Listen, the inspiration of Scripture demands complete fulfillment of every aspect of the promise. If Yeshua is Lord, then what he said is true. And He returned in the second coming during that generation. Now people say, I don't understand. You don't have to understand it. You just have to believe it, okay? Figure out the understanding later, but understand this is what He's saying. Now, you know, when you get the time statements, it's like people lose their mind today, okay? Well, He said soon, but soon, you know, a day as the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. God doesn't know time. God's not bound by time. True, God is not bound by time. Who did He write the Bible to? Us, all right? People. He didn't write the Bible to himself. He's writing to people who do count time. We're bound by time. We know time. So when someone says soon, we know what soon means. But people today say, oh, soon just can mean 2,000 years. I'm like, well, then how is it soon? What is What definition of number? You know, it's like God doesn't know how to tell time. Well, God does know how to tell time, all right? He's not bound by, but he knows how. In Numbers 24, Balaam, a prophet, made a prediction of Christ's coming. And here's what Balaam said. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. This is a prophecy of Christ's coming. And he says it's not near. It wasn't going to happen in a very little while. Why did he say this? Because he's prophesying this 1,400 years before Christ. So 1,400 years is not now. It's not near. How can 2,000 years be near? It can't. In many passages in the New Testament, we are emphatically told that the Lord's coming was near. Like I said, every time he talks about coming, he gives a time reference. It's soon. It's shortly. it's this generation. It's in a little while. The first century believers are urged to endure for a little while longer until He returns. It was only to be a very, very little while until Christ returned and destroyed their enemies who were the Jews. Now, most Christians would say that the Lord has not yet returned. you agree with that? By far, most Christians would say that. That makes Yeshua and the writers of the New Testament all false prophets that destroys our Bible, destroys our salvation. If you believe the Bible to be the inspired, the inerrant word of the living God, then you must take the time statements at face value. Okay? You have to take the time statements. They're there for a purpose. They're there for a reason. A little while does not mean 2,000 plus years. The Lord said He was going to leave them in a little while and then He would return in a little while. So to stretch the second coming beyond the first century is to destroy the teaching of the Bible. It's to make Christ and all the New Testament writers, again, false prophets. So what does Yeshua mean by a little while? Well, He used it of a few hours. Well, I think we get that being a little while. A few days, we get that. 40 days and 40 years. You say, well, 40 years is a long time. A little while, well, it's a generation. <clears throat> all right? And in the scheme of time, it's not all that long. But again, when we get to the writer Hebrews, he intensifies that because it's near the end. But to try to stretch a little while beyond the 40 years, there's no biblical basis for that. There's nothing. To try to stretch it over 2,000 years is ridiculous. Okay, You can't just say soon and 2,000 years later. Still soon. Can't be soon to them and soon to us. By a little while, Christ meant a generation at the most. Forty years. And forty years later, the Lord returned, destroying Jerusalem and the Old Covenant and consummating the New Covenant. The last days lasted a little while. See, they were in the last days. The last days of the old covenant in Israel. The new covenant has no last days. It's an everlasting covenant. And most Christians today, they still think we're in, the la- we're in the last days. No, we're not. But the Bible says you're in the last days. The Bible was written to them. It's telling them they're in the last days. Their last days ended. People say, oh, we're the last days of the church. Come on. How can you last days be longer than the whole life of Israel? Israel's last days. It's Israel's last day. The Old Covenant ended. We're in the New Covenant, no last days. So when Christ says a little while, that's what He means. And, and I said, there's no biblical justification whatsoever for stretching a little while past 40 years. I think there's plenty of justification for stretching it to 40 years, and I tried to show you that. He's quoting from these Old Covenant scriptures trying to show them you know, the consummation of the kingdom was going to come at that time. But we can't stretch it any further than that. So he came in eighty seventy 70 as he promised. That's comforting to me. You know, the Lord says something and he did it. He keeps his word. Isn't that good to know? If you don't feel that way, then, well, it's kind of sad. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. I thank you for this text, Lord. There's uh, there's so much in here, Lord, that we can just skim over so easily without even noticing, without seeing, Lord. I thank you for all the allusions in this text to the Old Covenant, to the Tanakh, and the the connections that you made there. Father, I pray that we would uh, see this, that you would open our eyes, give us insight, help us to understand what you're saying in this text. I pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would be willing to see, Lord, what you're saying here. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen.